verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And our sermon text today is also in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, starting in verse 28. This is Jesus on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You may be seated. Thank you, Ray. Those are some powerful words, are they not? It is good to see everybody this morning and some old friends from way back. It's so good to see you guys, all you Lingerfelts. You bring all the Lingerfelts together, you can have a whole congregation by yourself. But it is good to be here. You know, over the last, as an intro, over the last several months, probably six months, we've had, I guess, three intro classes, three new members class. And I've talked to, to several of those people, and they've, they're coming into our church, and they see the, the sign on the front that says Reformed Baptist. And their question is, what really does that mean? What is that? I don't understand. And they go through the new members class, and that, of course that helps clear up a lot of things, which are really, really good. But let me tell you a little bit about my history in an effort to explain and help them a little bit. I was raised Southern Baptist, and I loved it. When I was a kid, that was, that was the best place to be. We were there all the time. And, and my, my parents raised me up in that environment. When Sherry and I got married, 
we went to a, a small little PCA church in Conyers. And I was probably that's the first time I was introduced to the doctrines of grace. And one day, the, the young pastor there sat down with me and tried to explain to me God's sovereignty in salvation, saying that, Mark, you really didn't have anything to do with it. God had everything to do with it. And my reaction was, well, that's not fair. That's not right. How can that be? I'm, I know I used to say God's sovereign, but when you think about it, I was saying, okay, God's sovereign, but I dictate whether he comes into my life or not. It's not fair. It was a growing process for me to realize God is sovereign. If he's not sovereign over 100% of everything, he's not sovereign. I believed I had something to do with my salvation. Uh, open the door and knock. Well, I could let Jesus open the door and knock, but I dictated whether he came in or not. And that's not right thinking. The next hurdle I had to overcome were the doctrines or the phrase doctrines of grace. And a lot of people refer to these as the five points of Calvinism or TULIP. Um, let me say this about Calvin and Calvinism. Sherry and I discussed this on our way to Texas one day to see the kids. We consider ourselves Christians. And even though I agree, we agree with the five points of Calvinism, we're Christians. I don't consider myself necessarily a Calvinist. You know, a lot of people I grew up with shudder. If, even now when I go back to my hometown and shudder, you mention the name of Calvin, they don't like that. They want something like I did. They want something to do with their salvation. They want to make the final decision. They want to feel like they're in control, just like, just like me. If you know Robert Godfrey, uh, he's with the Ligonier. He says this about John Calvin. Calvin never talked about five points. Calvin labored and was remarkably successful at simply being biblical in his theology. And that's what we're trying to do here. That's what we're trying to do, strive to, to be here at RCC. Be biblical in our theology and thinking. You know, the five points of Calvinism, they were never put together until 50 years after John died. They were put together in a group of men at the uh, synagogue of Dork in 1618, 50 years after John was dead. So maybe they ought to be called the doctrines of grace, which they are, which is a little bit better, I think. Or maybe, how about five points of biblical thinking or theology? Amen. But let's go over those real quick. If you've never heard of those, as I had not, uh, you can write these down, but you'll want to look these up and just, it's a process and you want to go through this process. Number one, total depravity. This is where TULIP comes into play. Uh, and TULIP came out of the Synodic of Dort because they were in Holland. So Holland, TULIP, that was a great thing to do, I guess. It helps you remember what the five points are. Number one, total depravity. That deals with the sinfulness of men. And I'm going to go through these quick. We're not going to dwell on these. Uh, number two, unconditional election. 
Now, this deals with the sovereignty of God in saving his people. I had a hard time with this one. Not everyone. And it's not based on our merit or anything that we can do. That's a tough one. Number three, limited atonement. This is basically saying Christ's saving work upon the cross. In other words, he died for his people only. Okay, the elect. Number, uh, number four, irresistible grace. Oh, let me just mention this. We have other names for limited atonement now. We have definite atonement, which I like a little bit better. But like Butch says, it doesn't go with tulip. It makes it tulip. That just doesn't work. Uh, definite atonement, particular redemption. We have a really, Christians have a real hindrance of messing everything up with all our definitions. But it, but it is so clear. I think definite atonement works better. Number four, irresistible grace, or also known as effectual grace. In other words, this says that a person who is called by God for salvation can't resist it. So once God calls you, you're his. Amen. And the last one, perseverance of the saints, which is also called preserving grace. If you are saved, you will preserve you will last to the end. You won't fall away if you're truly saved. John 10, 28 says this, Jesus' words, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, amen to that. The first two of these principles cover the sinfulness of man and lays the groundwork for number three, atonement. Um, Christ's saving work on the cross, which we're going to be talking about today. And the last two are the work of the Holy Spirit. So you take those, if you're new to Reformed thinking, and Reformed is really biblical thinking, you take those and look those over and ponder those like I had to do. These are all important doctrines. They really are. Steve Lawson says this about them. A person does not need to believe these truths in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. I didn't. I'd never heard of them. But Christ saved me. However, a believer does need to embrace them in order to understand the way anyone comes to believe in Jesus Christ. And I, I agree with that. Why? Because it helps your theology, your theology be biblical. Like I said, today we're not going to tackle all of these. That's, that would be just too much. I'm going to leave that up to Butch. But I, but I have been thinking about the atoning work of Christ on the cross since Easter. It just has been in the back of my mind. I couldn't get rid of it. So if you're new to reform thinking or doctrine, I really hope and pray that today's message will, will help you a little bit as you progress and as you think and as you uh, pray with the Lord about these issues. Again, the TULIP, the L stands for limited atonement, uh, which as I stated earlier, simply means Christ atoning death was for the elect only. So let's pray and we'll get started. Our gracious Heavenly Father and loving God, Father, you are the God of goodness and mercy. You have asked us uh, to humble ourselves and cast all of our burdens on you. And Father, we do that this morning. 
we have the privilege of opening your word. Uh, Father, I just ask and beg that you would keep me from error and speak to us as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bibles, if you had, let's open them back up to John. Let's reread those verses again, starting in 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is going to be our starting point. We're going to jump from here and go several different places. Um, but I love the scripture, and I, I've been thinking about it since Easter, as I said. But if you start in verse uh, 26, I love this image that, that Jesus did, did for his mother. He turned at the last moment and gave his mother to John to protect her and take care of her. And I, I love that. That is such a wonderful image of our, our Lord and Savior. This was one of his last physical acts. And it brought to mind that everything was getting to a close, was coming to a close. Then he says, I thirst. And this really shows his humanity right up until the last second. After receiving the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I want you to think and think with me that I did. When I read that verse, have you ever asked yourself, okay, what did he finish? What did Christ mean by that? Well, obviously, it was his work that he came to do. John 4, 34 says this. This is Jesus speaking. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 17, 4, again, Jesus. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work, the work you gave me to do. Which begs another question. What work? Hmm. Of course, the will of the Father. John 6, 38 says this, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In Hebrews 10, 5, Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. It wasn't his will. It was the will of the Father. So, again, another question arises. What was the will of the Father? Let me back up real quick. And if you've been a Christian, you know all of this, but I'm going to go over it just briefly. In the Garden of Eden, Adam rebelled and fell. And we fell with him. And that caused a great separation between God and mankind. Now, because of that sin or rebellion... Every human is now alienated from God, which tells us in Colossians 1.21. But even more than that, Romans 1.18 tells us, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what that's basically saying is that we are at enmity with God. We're enemies. We're hostile. There's bad blood between us. It's not good. This sin created a barrier or gap between a holy God and sinful man. So once again, what was the will of the Father? What was his desire? Simply this, to bring us back or reconcile us to him. Paul says this when he's talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present present you before him, the Father, God. And this reconciliation is called atonement. Steve Lawson, if you're familiar with Steve Lawson, gives a great definition uh, on atonement. He says this, The word indicates that two estranged parties are brought together and made to be at one. It describes reconciling into a state of unity those who were previously hostile toward each other. That is reconciliation. In short, the great sacrifice that Jesus made to pay for our sins and overcome death is called atonement. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, there we go, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption or salvation as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of what? His will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Hmm. In other words, God sent his son to fulfill his will of saving his people. So a question I had to ask, and I did ask, why not, why not send Jesus into the world to save everybody? I guess he could have. But I think uh, Scripture is very clear that, the, that he came to save his people or the elect. And Jesus makes this very clear. He says this in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This implies that some are drawn and some are not. The Father draws those who he chose or elected to save, or his sheep, as Jesus says in chapter 10. He says this, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I have said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Perseverance of the saints. Who set up this final act for Jesus on the cross? 
Of course the father did. I want to rewind a little bit. You can go to the book of Leviticus, if you would. We'll start in chapter 10, but before we do, I may have shared this with you before, but I love it. I love when history comes together. When I'm reading history and it comes and is relevant to today. This is a book, this is a book I got out of my mother's library when she passed away. It's the autobiography of Ben Franklin. And I don't believe Benjamin Franklin was a Christian. I think he was more of a deist. He believed God started it all, but he really didn't have anything to do with everyday, everyday things. But in writing his autobiography, he said this about his family, which I thought was interesting. He said, this obscure family of ours was early in the Reformation. I said, oh, wow, this is cool. And continued Protestants through the reign of Queen Mary, or Bloody Mary, when they were sometimes in danger of trouble and on account of their zeal against the popery, or the Pope. And he goes on to explain that his great-great-grandfather tied a Bible or taped a Bible under a stool. And when he'd get the kids together, he would turn the stool over and read from the scriptures. But he'd put one grandchild or one child at the door because Bloody Mary had uh, guards that would travel throughout London looking for people reading the Bible. And if they were caught, they may be killed or put in prison. So there was one grandchild at the door. And so he would read the scriptures to them And if they gave the alarm, he would turn it back over and they would talk about other things. But that way he got to read the gospel and the scriptures to his daughter. And that just made history come alive for me in the Reformation and Ben Franklin. One other quick story that is even more makes it come alive. Diedrich Bonhoeffer's, and I may have shared this with you, I can't remember, older brother went to fight the Allies in World War I on the French line in Germany, and they were battling. He was killed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's brother was killed in May of 1917. Well, in June of 1917, my grandfather fought those same Germans on that same line. And when I read that, I thought, this is just amazing. This, to put that together with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all of that man meant with my, my relatives was just an eye-opening experience and just made it much more richer on history. And that's what I want to do a little bit right now. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 10. Let's, let me read verses 1 through 3 for you. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took assist, his sister, and, and, fire, and fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, because Nadab and Abihu offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, we're not exactly sure what that is. 
Later on, it talks about possibly them being drunk, but we don't really know. A fire that he had not authorized, the Lord had not authorized. He sent a fire himself that killed him right in his presence, right, probably right there in the temple. Well, let's, let's remember what's going on here. Because of man's sin, God had set up an elaborate system of laws, ceremonies, and sacrifices to help the Israelites in their newfound freedom. Remember, they just left Egypt. They still carried with them probably the baggage of their time spent in Egypt. All of the gods that Egypt worshipped, all of the traditions... I mean, they'd been there for centuries. You know that had to rub off on them a little bit. Now that they are free, how do you live a godly life? And more importantly, how do you worship the one true God well? And to help them in that process, God sets up standards through the laws, through the ceremonies, through the sacrifices, to guide an unholy people on how to approach a holy God. God did that. He set that up. The death of um, Nadab and Abihu brings into sharp focus, if you think about it, the realities of a holy God and an unholy people. And that God had certain requirements to enter into his presence. We're going to jump to chapter 16, but before we do that, 11, chapters 11 through 15, we're told about Nadab and Abihu, but then chapters 11 through 15, God does something different. He stops just for a minute. The purpose of God's word is, yes, of course, to know God better and to reveal his salvation, but it's also in a practical sense it's there to help, help and protect us from ourselves. To keep us clean as we battle against our sin natures. 11 through 15 are chapters telling the Israelites how to keep clean. How to be clean. Simple things um, like love your neighbor. Thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, do not steal, honor marriage the way God designed it, honor the way God made you, male and female. These are all good things. And they were all things established by God for our good and his glory. And that was the purpose that he did in chapters 11 through 15. He was talking about being clean and unclean and pregnancy and all that, all of that stuff. But it's the same, same thing. He's trying to help the Israelites maintain their cleanliness for their good, for their good and his glory. So in other words, God sets the standards. He sets the truth. They're good for us. They really are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He created us, and as creator, he knows what is best. 
if we step outside of his standards, we'll falter, as you can see in our society today. John Huss says this about truth. He said, seek truth, listen to the truth, teach the truth, love the truth, abide by the truth, and defend the truth until death. And that's what we're trying to do here. We just want to defend the truth. Okay, let's continue. Go with me to chapter 16. Let me read the first five verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. But I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram offering. And there's more details that we're not going to, do not have time for. But let's just go over a few things that we need to look at this morning. Aaron is the high priest. God tells him not to come at just any time into the holy place. He said, come in to the holy place with the blood of the bull and goat. First of all, you need to bathe. You're filthy, you're dirty, you're unclean. Put on the holy garments. Take from the people two goats, which will be used later. This was the day that the high priest did everything. No one else was allowed in. He was all alone. Verse 29 of that same chapter tells us that God chooses the time and the place. This was the seventh month on the tenth day. Then entered the holy place. Then he says, Aaron, he tells Aaron to cleanse by bathing, putting on the linen garments that were not his usual priestly robes. They were totally different. This was clothing used only once a year for this event. In verse 6, he tells him to sacrifice a bull offering as a sin offering for himself and, and for himself and, and the house, the temple. Then the ram offering was used as a burnt offering, which was an offering that signified the complete dedication of the person making the offering. Verse 16, the two goats are presented, presented live before the Lord. One is sacrificed. His blood is shed for the people. 
And that blood is brought into the Holy of Holies behind the veil. This made atonement, atonement for the people. Charles Spurgeon says this about um, this day of atonement. He said, the best he could figure out, there were 15 different animals sacrificed on this day alone. That's a lot of blood. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of anguish that the priest, the high priest, had to do himself. But as we said, this brought reconciliation between God and man. These bulls and goats were a substitute sacrifice. Instead of sacrificing the Israelites, God allowed a substitute who suffered for the sins of the people. And here's a point to ponder. This sacrifice or atonement was done, repeated every year. The Hebrew word for atonement is kapar, which means to cover up. And at this time, God did not really take away their sins from the world. He just, in a a way, covered them up until the next day of atonement. Then Aaron lays his hand on the second goat and confesses all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. In other words, all their wickedness and their violations of God's law. Then the goat is sent out into the wilderness to take away the sins of the people. Hmm. But it's fairly obvious that God did not take away the sins of the people long term. Hebrew 10.4 tells us this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why am I covering all this? A lot of you have heard this. A lot of you know this. Some of you, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. But it's very important for us to understand this. What is the reason God set up this system? What does it tell us? I think the big key here is in order to come before a holy God, you must come God's way. God has set the requirements and the standard. He, we can't make it up. I wanted to make it up. I wanted to have control over my salvation. We can't make that up. We can't change the rules. They have already been established by a holy God. So, sinners me included, how do we come before a holy God? I think we first need to recognize uh, that we are no longer under what the Israelites were under, the the Old Testament covenant that, that they were under, the sacrifices. Why? Because God has provided a permanent substitute for the bull and the goat. Jesus, he did that. Hebrews 12, 24 says this, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 8 tells us that he makes the old covenant obsolete, the first one obsolete. Therefore, we are under the new covenant. This day of atonement, as you will see, is foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ as our substitute. 
and it's provided by a loving God. Let's have a John Calvin quote. John Calvin says this about the scriptures. He said, the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns aside this object, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. Martin Luther said this about the scriptures. All of Holy Scriptures from beginning to end points solely to Christ as our source of grace and truth. Amen to that. And as Butch and other people have said from this pulpit, every story in the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus. And if you, if you can visualize that, if you read the Old Testament with that view, with that focus, you'll see it transform and point toward Jesus. We see grace emerging here from Leviticus. It provides the backdrop of God's merciful redemption, redemptive plan that is moving forward and will be completed a long time, 1,400 years ahead in the life and death of Jesus. So let's compare briefly. Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 7 and 8 tells us that. God set the time and the place of the cross, just as God set it for Aaron coming into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. Here's a, here's a great point. Jesus didn't have to take a bath. He didn't have to cleanse himself. He was already without sin. He was unblemished, without defect. He was the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. His was a one-time blood sacrifice. It never had to be repeated, not yearly like it did in the Old Testament. It covered it completely and finally. His blood brings atonement to us. We now have a way to God. That's just wonderful. To be reconciled to him, our sins are no longer held against us. The wrath of God has been satisfied by his atoning death, by, by the atoning death of his son. You know, in order to come before a holy God, we must come God's way. It's pretty simple. In the Old Testament, it was the ceremonies and the sacrifice and the blood of those animals. In the, two, in the New Testament, God's way is spelled out in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's a, that's a mind-boggling boggling concept to me. So let's go back to the cross. We're going to go back. Hanging on the cross, saying his final words, it is finished. One, he completed his work which was the will of the Father to save his people from eternal death and hell. Two, he declared that full and final payment for our sins had been made. They're gone, over, the end of them. Christ, three, Christ took on our sins, shed his blood only once for us, and made atonement for the penalty of sin, and this act brought reconciliation between us 
and God. It restored our relationship. It allowed us access. Dear lost person, if you may be asking yourself this morning, what must I do to receive this atonement that was so graciously given and sacrificed by Jesus? And it's really very simple. Repent, ask for forgiveness, believe and trust in Jesus. And as Butch said earlier, today's the day. Today's the day. And dear brothers and sisters, dear Christians, if, if you are a Christian, keep pondering. Instead of giving us what we deserve, death, the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood was a substitute for our death, eternity in hell. Romans 3.25 tells us he satisfied the wrath of God toward guilty sinners, us. And again, Paul tells us, let me read this, Colossians 1.22. He tells us that Jesus reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, our God. We now can be presented before a holy God. And not because of anything we did. Christ did it all. Christ's work of atonement was finished on the cross. And because of that sacrificial act, we now have a right standing before God. A standing not of our own doing, but one that God foreshadowed in Leviticus and then provided himself through his son Jesus. Jesus opened the door to us to a holy God. He tore the curtain. Cherish the, uh, these thoughts this week as, as I close. In his sovereign, gracious love, the Father chose a certain people for salvation. He then gave them to his Son. Jesus then committed himself to accomplish the will of the Father by obeying perfectly God's moral law on our behalf. Then... He paid the penalty for our disobedience to that same law by shedding his blood and dying once an atoning death. And that death, and that by that death, we could be reconciled to our Father. That is what he finished. R.C. Sproul says it this way. The significance of his entire life came down to this moment when he said... It is finished. He was saying not that his life was over, but that his mission had been fulfilled. His purpose in coming to earth and going to the cross was accomplished. So guys, when you look at this cross behind me, remember this. It's not the cross that is important. It's a great image, but it's just a piece of wood. It is the one who died on that cross and with it brought the hope of reconciliation with a holy God that is important. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the atoning death of your son, your precious, precious son. His blood was given for us. Father, fill our cups with this truth, 
so that we can love you more fully. Please do that, Father. In your son's precious and holy name, amen.